Then I went on to meet a young man named Louis Sevilla, which I talked about 11 years ago, this was. He literally was laying in his bed, pictures of his battalion on the wall, and his wife said, oh, he's a huge fan of yours from Dinner Impossible. He loved Dinner Impossible before he got deployed. And as I was there, he literally flatlined. I punched him on the chest, which don't ask me why I did that. And to this day, I laugh about it. And so does he, by the way. And I said, don't you dare effing die on me, not on my watch. And he came back and then the crash team came in and, and did what they did. I said to him, whatever you do, don't die. I promise I'll feed you. Welcome to season two of the Policy Vets podcast, engaging with leaders, scholars, and strong voices to fill a void in support of policy development for America's veterans. With your host, former Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shulkin, and the Executive Director of Policy Vets, Lou Chelley. Today's guest, celebrity chef Robert Irvine. Hey, Mr. Secretary, how's your summer going so far? You know, it's been busy. I know both of us have been traveling overseas, and it's really good to be able to finally get some traveling in now that things may be settling down with COVID, although that's a whole new topic as we're seeing the B5 variant increase. But it's always good to get back to the United States and recognize how special place we live in. No, you're absolutely right. There is a lot going on. You're right. We've both been traveling, both traveling overseas. I had to really be careful and and watch when I travel, you know, it's always eating in restaurants and, and, you know, all these fatty foods and they always use butter. So I had to be very, very careful because I, I was traveling almost 30 days. You mean careful watching what you're eating? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly right. Because if, I mean, if you just, if you're not paying attention, the next thing you know, you've gained four or five pounds on a, on a trip. Oh yeah. But I didn't show you the latest research that came out that's saying when you travel and you're, you're on vacation, calories don't count. Oh, is so, that it? Yeah, oh, exactly. you know, send that over. <laughs> I'm be interested in seeing that. It is hard to watch what you're eating when you're traveling for sure. Well, nutrition is such an important part of our health index. And, and as I mentioned during a previous podcast, you know, the pandemic gave me a chance to, you know, kind of sequester myself away with a home gym and, and watch what we eat. But now that we're traveling again, you know, we're, it's, it's almost getting back to normal. Yeah, I think that is one of the things about the pandemic. People started discovering eating at home more. And, you know, I know people who've started baking and people who started to really paying much more attention to cooking and preparing meals. And I think that is an important part when we talk about people's health and wellness that, you know, people know in an intellectual sense, but haven't really spent the time to think about how important that is. Well, institutionally, I think it made me realize what the quality of food is like when I'm not home, right? So I've, I, I think that my standards have been raised a bit, even airline food that you know, was always being joked about, but, you know, even in, in some of the better circumstances, they try to do their best. But when we talk about hospital food or, or food at the VA for that matter, you know, or, or DOD. So I think these nutritional programs are going to have to start stepping up their game because I think that people are starting to recognize that nutrition plays a critical role in overall health. Well, I think that's true. And, and I'm glad you pointed out that other companies and industries have really begun to pay attention. You know, when you do travel and and you get more than peanuts on an airline, maybe when you're going overseas, you now see that there are healthy choices, that people have menus where it's not just, okay, here's the food. 
There's also, as you must know, a whole new industry of companies that are delivering fresh products to your home so that you can put your meals together and not have to do it from cans and other prepared or preservative laden foods. And so, you know, one of the things that relates to our thinking about how do we improve the care for veterans is making sure that the VA is keeping up on that. Because I remember when I first started training in the VA many, many years ago, the food was literally inedible. The eggs were powdered eggs. It was probably very similar to what you were used to getting when you first joined the military, the army. But, you know, food was purchased in group bulk purchasing by government at the cheapest price. And and there just wasn't a recognition that this is an important part of how people recover and get better and start feeling better about themselves. You know, I wonder if that is a function of price, of cost cutting, of budget, or if it's a function of not really being educated to the importance of nutrition. You know, granted, a lot of a lot of the patients that are at VA are either recovering from surgery or in long term care. And, you know, maybe nutrition isn't the first thing on their mind, but, you know, recovery, uh, you know, proper nutrition is going to be an important part of recovery. It is an important part of wound healing, of infection control, but also of the connection to the mental health improvement and to the way that people feel about their overall well-being. And, you know, you know, I've run hospitals for a long time. Hospitals generally cost thousands of dollars a day to be in. The food costs about $8. So we're talking about a very small segment that with a very small investment can be significantly enhanced and improved. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about our guest today, Chef Robert Irvine, is that he spent his life understanding this connection between food and well-being and how important it can be to keeping people feeling good about where they are in life. He's a veteran, which really adds to, the, you know, I think the quality of his information when he talks about institutionalized different types of meals. And, you know, I don't know if you've actually seen any of his shows or not. I've, I've watched a couple of them and I really enjoy watching him go into a restaurant with a sledgehammer and just start tearing it apart. So... I'm really excited about, you know, uh, uh, about speaking with him today, not only about some of the things that he's been doing in the community, but also, you know, about that very topic about nutrition. Yeah. And I think our guests are going to hear that this is not to him a way to make a living or a business, that this is a guy who is filled with commitment and passion about giving back and continually doing more to help both our active military and our veterans. And you know, he's not afraid to jump on a plane to be out there and to be with these people to to make them feel better, to visit them in the hospitals, to visit them and where they're where they're stationed. This is a guy who simply just can't stop giving back. And that's the type of attitude, that's the type of personality that we're attracted to. People who are committed, no matter what skill they bring to the table, people committed to helping those who have served and continue to serve our country. You're absolutely right. I'm actually surprised that we haven't had him on earlier. I've crashed into him at a number of different events. Sometimes he's a guest speaker. Sometimes he just shows up because he was invited and he's just part of the crowd. Very humble and always very generous with his time, very generous with his donations. So I'm really excited to have him on the podcast today. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get him in here. I'd love that. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. 
Chef Irvine, thank you for joining us on the Policy Vets podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you. I'm very excited. Chef, again, we are really excited to talk to you. We have so much to talk to you about because you've been so active. But one of the ways we always like to get started, we like to hear people's personal stories about how they became active in the military. And of course, you're a veteran. And I think people will be interested to hear how your military service began. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. First of all, huge fan. I am. So thank you for all you do. It's interesting because when I was uh, a young man in England, I joined the Secrets, which is almost like, I think, ROTC here, because my dad was an army guy, my brother was an army guy, and I was not interested in the army, so I joined Secrets at 11 years old. It was the most amazing thing for me because I got to go to bases around uh, the globe and warships on weekends. So I fell in love with the life of the Navy and wanted to join. I was not a good student, so at 15 and a half years old, my mother marched me down to the recruitment office and said, yeah, you're going to prison or you're going in the military. (laughs) Um, The military, obviously, was the easiest version of that. And no, I didn't do anything wrong. It was just my mother being a mother. I joined the Navy. I signed at 15 and a half, joined the Majesty Navy on my 16th birthday, became a cook. It was funny because my NAMIT score, which was a Navy arithmetic, an English test, uh, five being the lowest, one being the highest, was 5-5. Five, five. And the recruitment guy said to me, well, I think you can be a cook or be a cook. And funnily <laughs> enough, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I'd been in home economics class uh, school for many years and fell in love with food. So that's how I joined the military. Very quickly progressed in my first eight weeks as a leader. And the rest is kind of history because I, I joined warships. I went to special forces groups, marine commando groups, and all those kind of things. And when I came out after 12 years of, of service, and then uh, I think it was three years reserves, I wanted to do something different. And when I came to the States in 1997, I was working on cruise ships. And one of my biggest thing was, you know, I got to get a job in a hotel. I joined the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. And it was the first year, never forget it, 1997, when the submarine service of the United States Navy was looking for a way to do cook chill on their submarines. In other words, cook it on shore and put it on the, on the submarines. And I had the largest cook chill facility in the United States at Trump Taj Mahal. And uh, they all came up and looked and I proved that it works. But it wasn't really good for submarines because unlike warships, when you go to war, you stack up and put false floors down. And as as the tour goes on, you you use the the food and the floors come down. You couldn't do that with with bags, plastic bags. Um, So it never went anywhere. But what it did do, it put me um, right into the White House with a guy named Tony Powell, who was the master chief of the White House military office and uh, many times, uh, two days a week, going to the White House teaching the Navy cooks up until we had the first army cook, I might add, in the White House. So that's how I started my career. And I think I do more now than I ever have done. I don't know if I'm comfortable with this whole anti-army thing going on. (laughs) But I got to tell you, 15 and a half, that is insane. 16 years old, joining the military. And and then all that you've gone on to do since then. I I mean, so many of our listeners might know you best from your food network shows like Restaurant Impossible and Dinner Impossible and Worst Cooks in America, which I probably qualify for, and you know several others. But 
what we really want to hear about more today is really your philanthropic work and, and the Robert Irvine Foundation and your donations through, you know, some of the products you sell. Was it Fit Crunch and, and Irvine Spirits, which I hope we get to try someday? <laughs> it's really it's really interesting because, yes, um, the show, I, I touched the show briefly because, you know, 320 episodes of Restaurant Impossible, number one show on on. Uh, cable right now uh, behind the news obviously has helped me get the recognition for the foundation and allow me to do things uh, that I couldn't normally do um, so we started the foundation eight years ago the Robert Irvine Foundation and it was because I'd been working with Gary Sinise for probably 13 or 14 years he contacted me uh, on Twitter funnily enough and and one day I was going to uh uh, Sotokana Air Base in Honduras, a Special Forces base, as you know, I was going to do Fourth of July celebrations with them. And Sinise reached out on Twitter and said, is this the real Robert Irvine? And I said, yeah, I'm verified, you know, the check. And I said, is this the real Gary Sinise? Because you're not verified. And he <laughs> said, yes. And we ended up working together. We created uh, something called the Invincible Spirit Festivals, where Gary would play um, the music at the hospitals and I would feed eight to 10,000 folks. Uh, in the hospitals around the country and we're still doing them to this date but about eight years ago after traveling the globe and 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 doing things that that I kept doing I wanted to do more so we started the Robert Irvine Foundation which is really primarily about physical and mental health although we you know we build houses with Gary and we donate a lot of money so that's where it all started and we've really progressed into the, the, the physical and mental health and really focusing on what we do as a company, which is feed people. So in, in my real world of food is an ulterior room of food, if you like, because right now we're going through the H2F program with, with the military or the army specifically. And how do we make food better, more nutritious, flavorful, and, and yet uh, give more resilient, uh, a more resilient soldier? So I think the whole, my real world of television and food bores over into the foundation, but also into, into how, do we, how do we make a better military in the future? Well, there's so much there to unpack. And I think the Department of Veteran Affairs still has some opportunities for improving its own food for our veterans. So we want to talk about that as well. But, you know, you mentioned that you're all over the place. You've traveled the world. I think you've just recently returned from Germany, helping the USO raise money for Ukrainians. So can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yes, I just came back from Germany. We do about, uh, I think this is my 27th, 28th USO tour. And we do on average 10 or 12 of our own a year prior to COVID, I might add. But really wasn't about raising money, but it was about um, giving morale. And it's kind of interesting because recently, and you know this, we've just announced that we are helping the Ukrainians. Um, But while we were in Bavaria and Germany, in some very, um, not secretive, but very quiet places, um, we are training Ukrainians on on technology of the weapons which we've, we've donated to them. So we got a chance to see that firsthand and I have to tell you, from Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria to, to Africa and all the places that we visited, me and my team, creating our program, uh, Breaking Bread for Heroes, it was really special to see the bond between the U.S. servicemen and Ukrainians and the mutual respect. There's one thing that the Ukrainians have that we don't, and that's really important to, to emphasize. 
the Ukrainians are training us on how to, to maneuver and take care of, of heavy equipment, not tanks, but, but tankers and things uh, of the like. And I think that was really interesting for me to listen, my team to listen to the benefit the Ukrainians are giving to the Americans and vice versa. So I think that was the fun part to get to drive tanks. Tell us a little bit more about that. When you say that the Ukrainians are helping the Americans, you're saying the Americans don't have the real field experience in moving that equipment around and keeping it away from by the Russians? That's a great question. We are so used to right now a Monday war of Afghanistan in Iraq and, and moving house to house. Yeah. We're not we're not used to, you know, hiding behind trees and, and, and maneuverability of, of tankers and, and supply chain. And so I think that's the give and take of what I've learned uh, yeah. from being there literally up until yesterday or the day before yesterday. And listening to our troops saying, well, look, we don't really, we, we, we're not used to this warfare anymore. This is European warfare right now with, with where we are with Poland is, I think, conventional warfare. And we are very used to unconventional warfare from, from the last 18 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing. So um, a Ukrainian knows exactly how to wire something to move it quickly, right? That doesn't have the pause. They've been so used to jerry-rigging things that because they, haven't, they don't have the, the, use, the resources that we have that I think it's, it's kind of a give and take in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, really, really interesting point. And I know what you mean about the difference in theater between Europe and, say, the desert. I mean, I spent 22 years in the Army, and a lot of that was in Germany. So, you know, I remember the, you know, the maneuvers in the woods, behind the trees, you know, yeah. making sure that we didn't tear up the farmer's field and all of those considerations. So, no, it's, a, it's an extremely different environment. So, uh, but I want to get back to some of the stuff that you've been doing and, you know, I've seen you at a number of events in, in Washington, D.C., and sometimes you come as a speaker, and really sometimes you just come as a guest, which, you know, for someone who's worked in the veteran support community for nearly two decades, your continued support really means a great deal to our community. And, you know, as a matter of fact, the last time I ran into you was a couple of weeks ago, and it was at a reception for something called a YOMP. And that was the first time I had ever heard that word. So can you tell our listeners what a YOMP is and what this one was all about? Well, a YOMP was termed for a long march, a ruck march. And we used it really, uh, it's been used in history, but most recently in the Falklands, 1982, uh, when our British Marines YOMPed, marched across the Falklands into Port Stanley. Very famous word, but more used now as a term of, I don't know, getting people together, I suppose. So it's interesting. There is a thousand coalition wounded that meet every every um, uh, year in June, and we travel fifty six miles across uh, Perth, Perthshire, uh, in wet, in dry, in misery, uh, and it is miserable. Believe me, when it's wet. But basically, there's nine hundred coalition wounded and a hundred U.S. veterans that are post-traumatic stress, that have the, the amputees, um, one, two, triple amputees. And we march, and we march together for a common goal of, of listening to each other. And I have to tell you, it's the, one of the events that I don't care where I am, what I'm doing. We fly in one day, we march the next day, and the minute the march is finished, after a couple of beers with the guys, I jump on a plane and get back to film. 
so it's, it's really meaningful to me because no matter where you come from, no matter which Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, or Space Force you're in, we all have the same, same ideas of, of, of freedom. We all have the same uh, goals. And yet we, we share a, a commonality in injuries that sometimes show and sometimes don't. And if you listen to somebody from Italy, from Germany, from Croatia, um, from Poland, I had the Ukrainians on the march with us, you know, they have post-traumatic stress, the, un- the unseen wounds. Uh, and just to walk two miles, listen to music, listen to their stories, and then either we move on or they move on and the next group p- catches up. It's just an unbelievable team-building eye-opening adventure for me. And, and I've done it now for the last four years, and I will continue to do it because I think it builds morale and it builds teamwork. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. It it sounds like sometimes you're giving back to all these veterans with your the resources that you have and the food, and you know you have a way of lifting them up, but it also sounds like they have a way of lifting you up and you go back to re-energize from them. That is absolutely right. I, I come back and I reflect with my team, and we have a pretty big team. Uh, uh, you know, we have 4,300 employees, and I reflect with the team why we do what we do every day. And, it, and, and, and I can tell you this, if, if I wasn't on television and I wasn't doing other things, my life, although it's dedicated 99% of it to our veterans and active duty men and women, I would be 150%. I don't know how many... You know, it's like getting two minutes of sleep in right. a microwave, you know. I would want to do more, uh, and I tried to do yeah. more, just not enough time in a day. So with that, can you tell us a little bit about the Robert Irvine Foundation? What's the main focus of, of the foundation's work? Well, I think the main focus is mobility. Is It's, you know, we have a program that we partner with Dean Kamen, and you may know Dean from the Segway. But what a lot of people don't know about Dean is he has over 500 patents, um, one of them, actually, is the SEAL team neoprene suits that we use for underwater adventures, let's say. So we partnered with Dean for what is called the iBot, which basically is a wheelchair that can stand a person up to, to normal high sight, eyesight, but also take all the, the hard work out of move, movement. So it can go up and down stairs on its own. It can go over rough terrain on its own. It can stand them up. They can shoot. They can arch. They can golf. They can all those kind of things. So it's really giving back um, mobility and freedom to those that have lost it through war. That, that's one of the programs. But it's also, uh, we've just taken over the Warrior Reunion Foundation into our foundation, which is putting teams of people together that haven't seen each other maybe for 17, 18, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and, and getting them back together for team building and, and easement of stress. I, I think that's the quickest way to say it. So they can talk amongst themselves. And one thing, and we all know this, that veterans don't do is talk. They don't talk about their experience because some are ashamed, some are scared, some are, uh, and, and I think that's what we do as well as, you know, buying dogs for, for post-traumatic stress. And we train dogs for a year before we give them out. So there's an awful lot of things that we do. We do, uh, and I mentioned this a second ago, Breaking Bread for Heroes around the country and around the world. Uh, literally, we're about to do one in Dover Air Force Base, um, Fort Hood, Fort Jackson, you know, all those kind of things. So there's an awful lot involved in the foundation. If anybody wants to check it out, they can check it out, org. 
But there's a lot more that we're trying to do, run a lot more programs, uh, along with which we do with Gary and, and um, TAPS, uh, which is a huge one for us. We do uh, every year some, we just had 50 Gold Star dads uh, in Vegas for a week. So we do all those kind of things that, that make it easier for people to communicate about their issues. You're interacting with so many different people and organizations, and you're seeing the way that we care for veterans from an international perspective, from a domestic perspective. Overall, do you think that the United States is doing enough to properly care for its veterans? Do you, do you feel proud of, of the way that our veterans are cared for when they need help? In some areas, yes. I think we're achieving the gold star. In others, I think no. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of work. And you said nutrition, number one, is, yeah. is a huge thing for me. And I'd love to go into that at some point with you offline. I think there's a lot of work we can do there. I think a lot of education, um, post-traumatic stress, as we've learned, is also linked to food hmm. in so many ways, uh, good, bad, and indifferent, um, you know, uh, I think there's a huge uh, thing there. Okay, I, I, okay I'm going to have to stop you because I've not heard that before, and I thought I knew a lot about post-traumatic stress. Tell us about yeah. So, so post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic yeah. stress, and we've learned this yeah. over the last five or ten years. It's triggered by different things in different people. Okay. So it could be your last meal in Afghanistan, for example, and I'm picking that out. Um, you yeah. had a meal with your buddies. You went out on patrol. All of a sudden, boom, there's no buddies left anymore. And I had one. I did a, I did a television show, a restaurant impossible in Hawaii, where I, re- I rebuilt a veteran who was blown up in Iraq. I saw that episode, actually. Yeah, on, on a Humvee. And his last meal was mashed potatoes and chicken. So every time that would see, that would trigger memories for him. Uh, textures and flavors and, and, and memories of that last meal. So, so food is a huge part of post-traumatic stress. Now, I've heard of comfort food, of course. What about food being part of the healing process and recovery process? I think it's a huge part of it. And yeah. one of the things you hear all the time is, oh, and I've been, you know, I've been in military hospitals. I visit them every couple of weeks. The food is not good. Yeah. And I think we owe, we owe, it, we owe our veterans a better, better accountability in that area mm-hmm. because we're asking them, and this is, again, this is one thing I deal with every week when people come to me and say, well, I was in Walter Reed, or I was in this, and I couldn't get this, or I couldn't get this. And it, it, it's, the, the VA is a huge organization, and it's not going to be changed overnight, and, and they're making great changes, but I think there are changes that we need to make, and food is one of them, understanding that not every person is the same. Yeah. So yes, when you ask me the question uh, about uh, David about the do we get a gold star? Yes, we do in certain areas, yeah. and we've come a long way in the last couple of years, a long way, and I really mean that. Um, but there's there's more we can do in a short period of time that doesn't cost money. In actual fact, it would save money, and I'm proving that with the military right now. We don't have the service personnel to cook food. We don't have the civilian organizations now because everybody's short staffed. So why are we not looking at providing our folks with value-added product that help them in that space? Mm-hmm. 
and I think there's too much red tape, not only in the military, but also in the VA. Mm-hmm. To, to stop that when there are vi- viable solutions out there to help them. Well, can you give us an example of what the solution would be that we should be taking advantage of? Okay, so so if you put something on the menu, yes, then it has to be available. Somebody has to make that. So when I say value-added, that means, okay, you come to a, a, a purveyor, me, a another, not using Robert over a another, and you say, look, we're going to use X amount of this a year, just like I do in the, in the civilian world, and say, look, uh, I'm going to buy futures. We need pulled pork, pulled chicken, you know, saltless chicken, whatever it is, chicken, then allow me to do it for you, giving you the price range that you need, so you don't have to have four people pulling chicken. Yeah. It makes no sense. So, so that's what I mean by, by adding value-added um, so it saves the personnel but gives the excellent quality to somebody that needs it without you having to say, okay, let's, let's take a chicken soup without salt. I don't need you to make a chicken soup. I can buy it. It's absolutely true what you say. And we've learned so much about nutrition, you know, over the past just 10 years in a very short time. And as I mentioned, you know, I was in the military for a long time and, and the, the prevailing wisdom, especially when you were in the field was high fat, high carb, high sugar, you know, to give you that energy. But we're finding now that that's not necessarily the, the best recipe, if you will. And to just to add to that, I read a statistic the other day that that talked about how the majority of our uniformed members are not just overweight, but classified as obese. Well, here's a real number for you. Wow. And you can check this number out. We spend $10 billion a year in obesity-driven disease in 1.4 million active duty men and women. How can that be? So the H2F program, which has got a billion-dollar grant to try and prove, and I know we can do this. In a week or so, there is a congressional meeting on food security or insecurity and obesity in our military. 23% of this country is ineligible for anything. We can't, we can't hire people because, and, and this is another problem. When you offer somebody $50,000 to join the army, why? Look what happened after 9-11. Look how many people right. joined as a services country. And I'm out there recruiting for every force saying, okay, look, you get trained, you get fed, uh, we, give you, we give you a skill, and we're going to send you around the world. It's not Afghanistan, Iraq anymore, but hmm. you know, it's Germany or it's somewhere. Um, and I think we can do better at that. And I think now, for the first time in history, we are starting to look at the human being as a piece of equipment. And I say that in the best possible form. Because if we take a $180 million drone, and we know where they are, or, or a nuclear warhead, we know where they are, but we have a 19-year-old kid that can't drink beer, that argues with his wife, but he's got to put you know, a 74-foot, propulsion system of a nuclear warhead or not the head itself but the propulsion system into a hole this big if he's not fed and he falls asleep or the drone what happens to the 180 million dollars we've lost it so i think now is the biggest for me the biggest exciting time because for 10 years through all the chairman the joint chiefs the joe dunfords the general millies admiral mullen all those guys we have now started to focus on the individual human being and the nutrition of that human being. You talked a, a little while ago when we were talking, before we actually started this, you told me a story when we were talking about the Combat Cares Act. You, you yep. want to you tell our audience about that? Yeah. I, you know, for, for the last, I don't know, year, 
and I can say about a year, I've been getting a lot of people. So 11 years ago, I met a young man named Captain Louis Sevilla and his wife, Claudia, and, and three kids. Uh, and I was doing a walk of Walter Reed. It wasn't called Walter Reed. It was some other name at that point. I just remember it was a Dunkin' Donuts at the bottom. And I'll never forget, I was, I was there early, and I, I asked, uh, could I get a cup of coffee? And the command sergeant major said, there's a Dunkin' Donuts downstairs. And I went down there, and there was a guy in a wheelchair. And at that point, I was doing a show called Dinner Impossible. And as I walked down there, the guy recognized me. He's like, oh, my God. I won't tell you what he said, but there was a few curse words, being an army guy. And I said, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And he Poor. said, no, I want to buy you a cup of coffee for what you do. And, and anyway, long story short, I said, what's next? You know, double amputee. He's like, I'm going back to, to get my, my legs back, you know, that kind of gusto. And it blew me away because I didn't know what to say. I did the ward uh, trip. There was 24 Marines all come back. And the President of the United States was there just before I got there the day before. And I walked and I said to the Marines, there's 24 Marines segregated in rooms. And I said, well, if there's anything I could change, what would it be? And they said, the food sucks. So I asked the commanding general, there was a galley, an admiral's galley. I said, look, what food can you get me? They got me uh, 12 torpedo, roads, t- torpedo rolls. I can't believe it's not butter. Three peppers, red, uh, a red and two green, slices of cheese, and butter spray. I made cheesesteaks, and I cut them up into little, little pieces like this. I took them, and you know what Marines right? They, they smell everything first. <laughs> it was gone, fingers and all. You know, they, they were just like, well, why can't we get food like that? I'm like, well, good answer, good question. Why can't we? Then I went on to meet a young man named Louis Avia, which I talked about 11 years ago, this was. And he literally was laying in his bed, and pictures of his battalion on the wall and his wife said, oh, he's a huge fan of yours from Dinner Impossible. He loved Dinner Impossible before he got um, deployed. And as I was there, he literally flatlined. I punched him on the chest, which don't ask me why I do that. And to this day, I laugh about it. Uh, and so does he, by the way. And I said, don't you dare effing die on me, not on my watch. And he came back, and then the crash team came in and and did what they did. I said to him, whatever you do, don't die. I promise I'll feed you. And sure enough, 11 years later, I fed him 96-ounce steaks and lobsters in the Pentagon with the chairman and and all the senior uh, staff not so long ago. So it was pretty cool. Um, But the Combat Cares Act, I believe they've taken all the money that we promised to take care of these folks with. And for me, when somebody has signed on that dotted line and they've been injured or been burnt or, or have post-traumatic, we have to do everything we possibly can to make sure that we give them what we promise them. And I don't think we are in, in multiple cases because I get the phone calls and the texts and I can share them with you afterwards of what's going on. When I sign up, I want to make sure that if I get injured, you're going to take care of me because you promised me that. And by the way, Louis Avila is now singing. Um, he's been a guest of President Trump, President Biden, and so on and so on at, at all these events, singing the national anthem, which he lost his voice box. So, wow. And with all that you're doing, do, do you have anything coming up that you'd like our listeners to specifically know about? Uh, well, we've got a lot of projects that we're working on right now, mainly feeding, changing and proving that we can get a more resilient fighter. We've got lots of TV shows coming up, but... but that's by the by. I'm excited that, that, that we get to 
one of the things I love the most is the collaboration between our active duty men and women, our VA, the senior leaders, and how to combat whatever's happening in the military, right? I, I believe right now I'm working on something with, with robotics, which help uh, alleviate the mundane tasks, right, of, of kitchen work. So is that making pizzas? I can make a pizza in 60 seconds on a base that's healthy for you in 60 seconds with a salad next to it. You know, one of the things I find that's really interesting is that we're, we're a three-meal-a-day military. Why? But we're asking them to work 24 hours a day. So why is food not available? And it's working. It's in the works. But again, it's taking time to get done. Why do we not have vending machines that can give healthy food? And yes, we have food trucks. And yes, we have... But there are times on those food trucks. What I want to do is make sure that, like the athletes we're asking them to be, which means be ready all the time, be training all the time, get up, work out at 5 o'clock in the morning, go do your job, and, and, oh, by the way, if something happens, you better be packed and ready to go. Then we have to make sure that they are ready for that. And that means food, sleep, spiritualism, all the things that go into the holistic approach. And that's also purchasing food. Who's purchasing the food for the VA? Who's purchasing the food for the military? You know, just because somebody's got something that, that says, oh, you know, we got a hot dog that's 13 cents, we can buy 15 millions because they're cheap, then what do I do with that? You know, there's got to be a smart, holistic approach to not only feeding in the bases and the VAs, but then when they go home and then in the commissaries and then on the, how do we, these young kids, and you know, uh, David, that we're one in four of our active duty men and women are food insecure right now. Yeah. One in four from E5 down. That's a real number. Well, how can people who are listening get involved and help in what you're doing? Listen, I, I, I feel that anybody can volunteer uh, in any of the foundations. You know, the Travis Mills, the Robert Irvine, the Gary Sinise, the TAPS, the USO. There are lots of ways to help. If you've got information that helps solve a problem, then share it. You know, I think one thing that, that our civilian side has progressed in is sharing of information and changing things and putting systems in place to change uh, things for the better. And I think if those civilian organizations can help the military or help the VA or, or, or any of our federal government, then say something. You know, it's like the, what you say, see something, say something. But if you have an idea, share it. I am not opposed to... Uh, getting into a room and, and, and full of senators and, and generals and, and say, look, this is how we combat it in the outside world. Why can't we look at that? I'm not asking you to pick one specific uh, vendor or one, but hey, do your process, but here's what's happening outside. And I think that's, that's the biggest change in fitness, in food, and everything else that we do. I think that's really a good point. And, and, I don't think that food is something that we look at seriously enough and take into consideration, you know, the nutrition that's important for, you know, for everybody, for mental health, for physical health, for spiritual health. And I think that's a really great point. So we are coming up on the end of our time. And, you know, before we go, we always want to make sure that, that we give our guests an opportunity to, to share the last word. Is there anything that we didn't cover that we might've missed or that you'd like to, to leave our listeners with before we go? There's nothing I didn't think we covered, but I would like to say that to all the men and women that were the clutter of our nation and the families that stand behind them, I say a huge thank you. And it's never enough. 
every time I go around to bases and, and, I, and I see folks and I cook and I work out and I, and I do what I do, they always say thank you to me. I'm humbled of what you do every day and our leadership, um, David, uh, our senators, our congressmen and women that fight the good fight to get what we need for these men and women and their families. And all I ask is that every time somebody sees somebody in uniform, don't say thanks for your service. Just go up and say thanks, you know, or buy a cup of coffee. Uh, it's amazing what a cup of coffee does or giving a seat or, or just a conversation. That's a great place to leave it. And even though you said you don't like to be thanked, we do thank you for everything that you're doing and the way that you keep contributing. And uh, it's people like you that could be doing lots of other things, but are given back that really do make a difference. So thanks for joining us today on Policy Vets. Thanks, guys. Chef, I look forward to seeing you at the next event in D.C. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Oh, you're welcome. And that really is all the time that we have for this week. We've got a great summer lineup coming up for you. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. We've got somebody from the Library of Congress who's going to talk about a veterans program that they just did that really turned out great. We've got a wonderful program out of George Washington University you're going to hear more about. And we've got some government officials from Ukraine who are going to be visiting the United States. You're going to be hearing from them. So stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe, and we'll see you later. Thanks for listening to the Policy Vets podcast. For more information about projects and other podcasts, go to policyvets.org.